Uh, we were reflecting in the worship class yesterday how there's a misconception in the church how the worship time is the music time and we sing for 20 minutes and we have worship and praise time and then we go on to other things as a church when really, uh, biblically speaking, the entire service is worship, the, the greeting time is worship, the offering is worship, the teaching of the word is worship, the response to the word of God is worship, the fellowship time around donuts afterwards is worship, getting herded into second hour in a timely manner is worship. All of these things are worship to our God, and so it is our joy on this morning to continue our worship by looking at the Word of God together. And if you have your Bibles, uh, please turn to Philippians chapter 4. Our text this morning is going to come from verses 10 to 20, and the title of this morning's message is Gratitude for Generosity. Gratitude for Generosity. Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 20. As you have know, as you know, we've um, begun the laying the foundation campaign a year ago, and we spent the last three weeks refreshing our hearts and our minds and our understanding of what God would accomplish through our church in this stewardship campaign. It's been such a refreshing time. It's been such an encouraging time. Uh, Pastor James has served us so well in the last three messages and teaching us of the nature of indirect ministry in Acts chapter 6, how practical ministry comes alongside of the ministry of prayer and the Word of God and the gospel advances in this world as those ministries work together. And also in the nature of generous uh, grace giving, how grace giving is not like law giving. Law giving is you must, you are obligated, you are prescribed to give a certain fixed amount, where grace giving is a response of gratitude to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ at the cross, that he who was rich became poor for our sakes, that we may become rich in him. And as we believe that message and as we trust in that message, our hearts are transformed and we desire to give free will offerings unto the Lord and that express in grace giving. And last week we looked at the whole idea of how God loves a cheerful giver. How God perhaps may be more concerned about our attitudes than the amount that we give. How God delights in generous, sacrificial, proportional giving and how He, um, how this glorifies God. And brings him joy in a specific way. This has been a tremendous uh, time for our church to learn and to grow. I think there's a misconception that the Laying the Foundation campaign is not very spiritual in nature because it deals with two subjects that don't seem very spiritual on the surface. The first is money and the second is a building. And we might look at that and say, well, oh, those two subjects aren't very spiritual, but the truth is that Jesus talked more about money than he did about any other subject. And yes, we do care more about your souls than about your money, but we cannot shepherd your souls without talking about money because money is so intertwined with how we really are doing spiritually. And so that was a very spiritual subject, but a building, as we look at a building, there's such a temptation to look at that and say, well, that's not spiritual. It's just a building. It's just 
parking lots and chairs and it's just restrooms and it's just rooms and doors. How spiritual can that be? It's not the gospel. It's not evangelism. It's not missions or prayer or worship. Those are spiritual things. In these last three weeks, we've sought to shepherd your hearts in understanding the role of indirect ministry from Acts chapter 6 and how it comes alongside the preaching of the Word and it comes alongside the preaching of the Gospel. And these ministries work together and yes, we desire to see the Gospel go forward and transform lives, but in order for people to hear the Gospel, they need parking lots that they can come and park their car and they need seats that they can come and sit down and there needs to be rooms to put children and there needs to be tables to put food so that we can fellowship. And that this um, misconception that a building would be an unspiritual topic, it's really a misconception we've sought to shepherd your hearts and get you to understand the whole idea of the role and the promise of indirect ministry. And as Pastor James has said, the Laying the Foundation campaign is the most important indirect ministry going on in our church today. It is the one opportunity that each one of us has to bless our entire church in one act of service. Most of the time we're scattered in different ministries and we're ministering to different groups and different people, but this is the one opportunity that we have to bless the entire church through our ministry of giving. I've been so tremendously encouraged by talking with many of you about your response to these last three weeks, and more encouraged by the the spiritual heart to see this as an opportunity to grow in the Lord and to be sanctified. Um, I was talking to some brothers this week who told me, Dan, I'm, I'm so thankful, I'm so thankful that the laying the foundation campaign came at this particular point in my life because I'm learning how to steward my finances. I'm just learning how to manage the money that God has entrusted to me. I don't want money to be an idol. I don't want to worship money. I, I want to honor the Lord and how I steward these finances. And this has just been such a great opportunity for me to really reflect and to bring this before the Lord and to glorify God in how I manage my finances. And I was just so encouraged by that. I was just so encouraged by the heart to see this as an opportunity to grow and to be sanctified and to have our hearts released from our love of material things and to grow in our love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I was just reflecting this week how thankful I am, how, how thankful I am to be at a church where the Word of God is received in such sensitive areas where it could be received in a negative way because it is personal and it is sensitive and it does have to do with our finances. And that's a place where a lot of people don't want to go and yet I've been so encouraged and so thankful to be at a church where the brothers and sisters here, that they understand that if the Word of God speaks about these topics, then it's good for our souls to hear it. And we want to be shepherded in these areas. I was just reflecting on just how thankful I am for that. We were talking to our finance team 
uh, this week, and they reported to us that that we have uh, virtually this is this is unbelievable. We have virtually 100% participation from our members in the laying of the foundation campaign. That is, of the regular givers who are giving to our church, of the membership, we have a virtual 100% participation that they're also involved in laying the foundation. That absolutely blew my mind. The response to the Word of God to the Word of God from this church has been so tremendous. And again, as pastors, as leaders, I speak for the elders, I know this is on their heart, we care for your souls. We care for your souls more than we do a building. We care for your souls more than we do if this campaign goes well. And yet, the response to the teaching of the Word of God and the leadership of the elders has been so tremendous that we believe that the souls of Cornerstone Bible Church are growing through this time, and, and in that we rejoice, and we give God great praise. And so it was on my heart this morning to go to a text which expresses a leader's thank you for a church's generous giving. I wanted to go to a text which expresses a leader's gratitude for a church's generous giving. Because I believe that this is what is on the heart of our elders, Pastor James, Elder Bob, myself, Pastor Joe. This is on our hearts, is to express gratitude for you and for the members here at Cornerstone Bible Church and for your desire to honor Christ in this way. Philippians chapter 4 verses 10 to 20 is Paul's thank you letter to the Philippian church. It is his thank you note to them which is expresses his gratitude for a gift they had given to him through a servant named Epaphroditus. Back in Acts chapter 16 Paul had founded the church at Philippi through the preaching of the gospel. Soon after founding the church of Philippi, he had moved on to other regions. He moved on to Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17, and he moved on to Corinth in Acts chapter 18. But in those early days of gospel preaching, the church at Philippi had followed his ministry, and they had not only followed him with their hearts, they had followed him with their giving. They had supported Paul financially, as he moved on to Thessalonica and as he moved on to Corinth. And their hearts were with him in his gospel ministry and they wanted him to know that our hearts aren't just with you in terms of our emotions or our words. Our hearts just aren't with you in terms of our affections. Our hearts are with you tangibly through our giving. Paul, we love you. We believe in what you're doing. We want the gospel to go forward. We want the gospel to be proclaimed. We want the kingdom to be advanced. And we're not just going to say it to you. We're going to give to you so that our heart would be expressed tangibly, physically, monetarily, financially. So the church at Philippi had expressed this heart as they had followed Paul's ministry in those early days of gospel preaching. But what had happened 
In the meantime, the best that we can piece together is that a period of approximately 10 years had followed. And the Philippians, for a reason that we don't know during those 10 years, had lacked the opportunity to give to Paul's ministry. Now, we don't know if they were preoccupied with issues that were going on in their own church, or we don't know if they just lost track of Paul because, I mean, he was going from place to place and they didn't know where to send their finances. But it appears that in those 10 years, they had lost the opportunity to give to his ministry. And now after approximately 10 years, Paul had been imprisoned in Rome. And now he was in one place at one time, and they had finally caught up with him. They had found out about his trials. They had found out that he is most likely here shackled to a Roman guard without freedom, without means of supporting himself, without the ability to work. He was facing trial. He was facing possible torture. He was facing possible death for the gospel of Jesus Christ. They had caught up with him. They had heard of this. And they said again, Paul, we love you. We want to minister to you. We want to encourage you. We want to show you that we're with you in heart. And so they sent a servant named Epaphroditus to meet Paul in his imprisonment. And Epaphroditus had come and he had brought to Paul this gift from the Philippian church. The best that we can tell here, this is a financial gift. This is a material gift. It is a a monetary gift. And through this, the Philippians desire to minister to Paul's in his imprisonment. Now, what Philippians 4, verses 10 to 20 is, is Paul's thank you to the Philippians for their gracious gift. And as we look at this passage together, what we're going to find in this passage is two characteristics of a gospel-saturated heart. Two characteristics of a gospel-saturated heart heart, two fruits that had been born in Paul's heart as the gospel had come into his heart and had changed his heart and borne fruit in his heart, these are the fruits that come out in this thank you letter to the Philippian church. First, we're going to see that a gospel-saturated heart is a satisfied heart in verses 10 to 13. And then we're going to see that a gospel-saturated heart is a servant's heart in verses 14 to 20. A satisfied heart and a servant's heart. Let's look, first of all, a gospel-saturated heart is a satisfied heart. It is a satisfied heart. Verse 10, Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. That now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. You'll note here that Paul begins this thank you section of this epistle with this simple expression and statement of joy. He writes in verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord. Now remember where Paul is. This is a man who is imprisoned for his faith. 
He's shackled to a Roman guard. He doesn't have freedom to do as he pleases. He faces a trial in which there may be torture and maybe death. This is a dark and a difficult and depressing situation. He's lonely. He has no means of support. He has not been in prison for doing wrong. He has been in prison for doing right, for preaching the gospel. And yet, in the midst of this dark and depressing and difficult situation, he pens this letter of the Philippians, and it is a letter, an epistle of joy. It is an epistle where Paul expresses the joy and the satisfaction and the delight that he has found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is a joy that he says that my circumstances can't touch. It is a joy that my lack of freedom can't touch. It is a joy that my prospects in the future cannot touch. It is a joy that I have found that nothing in this world can touch because it is a joy that is rooted not in my circumstances, but in the gospel truth that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has come to this earth. He has died on a cross. He has risen from the dead. And I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a hater of the church. But God had mercy on me. And when you know that, and when you know that your sins are forgiven and you're going to heaven through the grace of God in Jesus Christ, you can sit in a dark dungeon of a Roman prison with no freedom and you can say what he says in verse 10, I rejoice. I rejoice. This is what he does throughout the entire epistle. Chapter 1, verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy. Chapter 1, verse 18, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. Chapter 2, verse 2, complete my joy. Chapter 2, verse 17, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Chapter 3, verse 1, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. You say, how can a man be in the darkest circumstance of his life, and yet write this epistle of joy. It's because Paul knew the simple gospel truth. That Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And because of his death and resurrection, I'm redeemed and I'm saved and I'm forgiven and I'm going to heaven. And if you know that and you believe that and you rest in that, you're going to rejoice no matter what's going on in your life because nothing can touch that. And I've talked to Christians going through most difficult trials. I've talked to Christians who have really nothing in this world. And I've heard them say to me and look at me eye to eye and say, I'm rich. I'm rich. Dan, I'm going to heaven and my sins are forgiven and I know Jesus Christ. And that was, the, that was the joy that Paul's experiencing here. It was the joy in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he says to the Philippians, I rejoice in the Lord greatly. Why? Verse 10, Now at length you have revived your concern for me. 
Uh, it's a horticultural term, the term revive. It pictures the Philippians' love for Paul blossoming again after a ten years long winter's rest. And he says, remember those early days when I went to Thessalonica and I went to Corinth and you loved me and you, you sent your gifts to me and, and you were concerned about me and that brought so much joy and encouragement to my heart. Well, after ten years, you've revived that concern and it's come up again. And your love for me is blossoming. And I know you still love me. He's so affirming here. It's, it's such a, a masterful thank you note. It's so affirming and it covers all the bases. And it's God-centered, but it's encouraging to man. And he says, I know you love me. I know you were concerned about me. You just lacked the opportunity. But now you've revived your concern for me. And in that I rejoice. And in that I rejoice. Note the careful way that Paul expresses this thank you letter. He doesn't say, I rejoice because you gave me money. I rejoice because you revived your giving. Gosh, I was kind of stressed out there for a while that I didn't know where my support was going to come from. He, he says it very carefully. He says, I rejoice because you revived your concern for me. And yet your concern for me was expressed in your giving. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but you can encourage someone by giving to them financially. And the giving, it's not the money that encourages their heart, but it is the money. It's not the money, it's the heart behind the money. It's the concern and the love and the care and the devotion and the fellowship that's behind it, but it's one thing just to say those things and it's another to actually give physically and to say, here's my heart and I want you to be encouraged. I can remember a few years ago um, when our family was going through very difficult financial times and we had come to a place where we had very little in our checking account. And not that this is the standard of, of uh, struggle or anything, but we just had come to a place where, where we were charging our groceries. And, you know, we were used to going to Costco. We had a lot of mouths to feed. And, and we came to a place we couldn't go there anymore because Costco, you know, they take cash only. And I was just sharing with a dear brother, just, just my heart, like how this was discouraging for me. This was hard for me. Could you pray for me? Um, and just mentioning offhand, you know, uh, we can't go to Costco anymore. And I remember a week later getting an uh, envelope in the mail. And I opened this envelope, and in that envelope was a Costco card. <laughs> and a simple note that said, I'm praying for you. Be encouraged. And if you've ever been ministered in that way, you know that it's not the money it's, it's not the grocery, it's not the monetary gift, but it is the money. That, that card said something to me that I will remember for, all my, I believe, all my life. That I love you, I'm with you, I'm praying for you, and I understand. I'm not just saying these words. I understand, and I want to be here with you. And that was the Philippians to Paul. 
they were concerned about him. But Paul says, you showed your concern for me, not just by saying it, but by giving. And in that, I rejoice. I have so much encouragement in my heart because you have revived your concern for me. The joy of a gospel-centered heart is the gospel-centered relationships that he builds in the church. And Paul rejoiced in the Philippians' fellowship with him. Now Paul is thank you for, thankful for the Philippians' giving, but he doesn't want them to think that he's asking for more money. So maybe, you know, like my kids are kind of like this sometimes. They'll say, you know, Daddy, thank you for the candy. And then really what they're saying is like, can you, can you give me more candy? I'm like, I kind of want some more candy. And, and Paul doesn't want them to think, maybe you've gotten thank you letters where it's like, thank you so much, and actually here's like five other needs that I have, and it's actually a way of asking for more money. And he doesn't want them to, no, no, I'm so thankful for what you did, but I don't want you to know, feel like I'm asking for more money. So he immediately adds, verse 11, not that I'm speaking from need, not that I'm speaking in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. He shows us that a gospel-centered heart is a contented heart. It's a satisfied heart. It's a heart that's at peace no matter what circumstances he's in. Paul believed in the gospel. He had faith in the gospel. And because of that, his heart was satisfied and he was content. And he says, I've learned to be content no matter what my circumstances are, I'm not asking for more money, Philippians. I'm just rejoicing in what you've done. Jeremiah Burroughs has described contentment as that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's father, wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. A heart of contentment is really, it's a quiet heart. It's a satisfied heart. It's a heart that says, right here, right now, with whatever God has given to me, I'm satisfied. I don't need anything more. I'm not coveting what doesn't belong to me or what God hasn't seen fit to give to me. Wherever I am, right here, right now, I'm, I'm good. I'm content. A contentment heart is a heart that rests in God's provision. That God is our gracious Father and that He will provide for us everything that we need. It is a heart that rests in God's providence. A heart that sees that God works out all things for our good and for His glory. That He is in control of every circumstance of our life and that in every step of the way, He is desiring to bless us and to make us more like Jesus Christ. But above all, contentment is a faith in Christ's sufficiency. It is the heart that says, I will rest in Christ. I will trust in Christ. I will delight in the person of Jesus Christ. And I will experience what Christ has promised to me when He said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Paul says, I've learned this secret. I've learned how to be content. And would you notice that Paul had to learn it? It didn't come 
naturally to him. It didn't come instantaneously to him. It wasn't one day he woke up and said, boom, wow, I'm content. I'll never be dissatisfied again. He pictures this learning process as the entirety of his Christian life up to this point. And he said, through that entirety of my Christian life, I have been progressively learning how to be content in Christ and not be mastered by my circumstances. I've learned how to be satisfied with little. I've learned how to be satisfied with much. In every and every any and every circumstance I've learned to be content. Verse 12 he says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Paul says there's a secret There's a secret to having a satisfied heart. There's a secret to having a contented heart. There's a secret to to not being restless in life. There's a secret to not being anxious. There's a secret to having a tranquil, peaceful heart in any and every circumstance. And I've learned it. I've learned the secret. And so many people in this life, they haven't learned the secret. You know, would you notice that Paul says, it doesn't matter if it's in, I'm in hunger or in abundance. And a lot of people, they don't struggle with contentment when they're poor. They struggle with contentment when they're rich. Because they look at their abundance and they start to idolize it and find their security in it and they find that it doesn't satisfy. And so they struggle with contentment in their abundance. And another reason why they struggle with contentment is because they've lived their whole life believing this lie that if they get to the place of abundance, then that'll be the place that's satisfied. And, and they spend years laboring for that place and they finally get there and they realize that there's nothing there. And that is empty. And it doesn't satisfy and it doesn't bring fulfillment to the heart. Paul says, I've learned a secret. And we could go on the airwaves, we could go on the TV set and, and advertise. Cornerstone Bible Church, we have found the secret to a satisfied heart. Because it's right here. You say, Paul, what's the secret? Can you, can you let me know what it is? Because I'm struggling right now. I'm, I'm discontent. I'm having a hard time. I'm, I'm looking at things. and I, I want things that God hasn't given to me and I'm struggling. What's the secret? He tells us in verse 13. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Paul answers here, you want to know the secret? The secret is not a plan. The secret is not a method. The secret is not a principle. The secret is not a program. The secret to living a contented life is a person. It is a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Paul has pictured Jesus Christ as our Savior. He has pictured Jesus Christ as our substitute. He has pictured Jesus Christ as our intercessor. He has pictured Jesus Christ as our mediator. But here he pictures the person of Jesus Christ as our strength as the one who is not only with us in his past work on the cross and his resurrection, 
but who is with us in his present strengthening ministry. Jesus said to us, Lo, I am with you even until the end of the age, and he is with us right here, right now. He is there to strengthen our hearts. He said, Abide in me, and I in you, and I will bear my fruit in you. And Paul says, I found the secret to having a contented heart, and the secret is living a day-to-day life of faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I can be content because Christ is with me. I can be content because Jesus is living in me. I can be content because I can abide in Jesus. I can be content because Jesus is here to strengthen my weary heart, to quiet my troubled soul. Jesus is here to speak peace to my heart. And the reason why I believe that Paul said, I had to learn this. I had to find the secret. It's because Paul may have struggled with the same thing that you and I struggle with, and that is that we tend to believe in Jesus for our conversion, and then we try to live the rest of our Christian lives in our own strength and in our own reliance. And Paul says, you know what, I had to learn how to forsake that. I had to learn every day to come and be a receiver. I had to learn every day to come to Jesus just as much as I came to Jesus the first day I became a Christian and to say, Jesus, I need to receive from you your strength, your provision, your protection, your peace, your blessing, your joy. But once I learned that, I found the secret. And so I'm satisfied. Philippian church, I'm satisfied. You gave to me and I receive it graciously, but I'm content. I rejoice in your gift, but it isn't something that I absolutely will be crushed if you didn't give it to me. And brothers and sisters, I would just ask you this morning, as Paul would minister to us, through his word. The simple question is, are you content? Are you content? Not tomorrow. Not, uh, not I'll be content if, fill in the blank. Not, gosh, if God would just do this in my life, then I would be satisfied. But right here and right now, Have you learned the secret of contentment? Are you able to look at your life right now and to say, you know what? I'm satisfied. Jesus has died for me. My sins are forgiven. I'm going to heaven. God is orchestrating every detail of my life for my good and His glory. And Jesus is here to strengthen me. And in that, I am content. I'm content. The first lesson we learn here is that a gospel-centered heart is a satisfied heart. But I want you to see also, secondly, that a gospel-centered heart is a servant's heart. It's a servant's heart. 
if we believe the gospel, if we trust in the gospel, if we have faith in the gospel, then the fruit that the gospel will bear in our lives will be the fruit of servanthood. We will love people more than things, and we will desire to express our love for them in humble service. Now remember here that Paul is talking about money. He's talking about this sensitive subject that the church a lot of times doesn't like to talk about. He's talking about this issue of finances and material giving that a lot of churches, they say, oh, that's off. you can't talk about that. People get too sensitive. People don't like it when you talk about that. We shouldn't talk about those things. But he's talking about it in such a God-centered, gospel-centered way that he brings encouragement and joy to their hearts. And so he says in verse 14, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. It was kind of you. It was kalas. It was good. It was noble. It was beautiful of you to give this gift to me. Uh, don't get the idea, Philippians, that just because I'm content and because I'm satisfied that I'm a superman and I don't need your help. I need your encouragement. I need your affirmation. I need you to stand with me in this time of loneliness and trouble. And so it was good. It was kind. It was Awesome, it was beautiful of you to send this gift to me. And in doing so, verse 14, you're sharing with me in my trouble. You're standing with me in my trials. You are with me here in prison through the vehicle of this gift. And it was good. It was kind. I'm content, but man, I appreciate so much what you gave to me. You are a true partner in the gospel. You say, can a monetary gift express fellowship and participation and say to someone, I'm with you, even though I can't be physically with you? Paul says here, the Philippians gift did all that and more. The Philippians gift said to Paul, we are in true koinonia with you. We are in fellowship with you right now, right here. And while some Christians never want to verbally appreciate other Christians because they're so afraid of, gosh, if I verbally appreciate them, then they're going to get a big head or they're going to get puffed up. Paul doesn't, he's not afraid of this. He says, it was noble of you to do this, Philippians. It was so good of you. You supported me. You partnered with me in the gospel. Verse 16, even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Remember 10 years ago when I went to Thessalonica, you supported me not just once, but verse 17 says once and again. They gave once and they gave repeatedly. They kept saying to Paul, we love you. We're with you. Keep preaching the gospel. And this is how we're going to show it. Their giving was proportional, sacrificial, generous. It was cheerful. It was all the things that we've been talking about the last three weeks. And it was repeated. But here in verse 17, I want you to see what I believe expresses a true gospel-centered leader from a false leader. I want you to see what really separates a true gospel-centered heart from a heart that just wants to profit from the church. So maybe even some of you, you've been 
abused. Or maybe some of you, you've seen what's going on in the church today, and you see church leaders just abusing their flocks and fleecing their flocks and, and abusing the, um, and asking for money. And, and you're looking at this whole topic of a leader receiving gifts from money, and it makes you uncomfortable. And you're thinking like, gosh, I don't know. I'm not really comfortable with that. And you're going to the other extreme and saying, gosh, we shouldn't even talk about that at all. And you're wondering what separates a real gospel-centered leader from just a false wolf that wants to profit from the sheep. And the thing that separates a gospel-centered leader from a false teacher is verse 17. It's this heart. Note this. Paul says, Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Oh, this is beautiful. This is so beautiful in the heart of Paul. What Paul does is he looks at the Philippian church and they give him this financial gift and he's saying, I'm encouraged by that and you're with me and gosh, it ministers so much. But you know what? In the end, my joy isn't in the gift. My joy isn't in the comfort. My joy isn't in the encouragement. My joy isn't in the absence of loneliness. My joy is in the fact that through your giving, God is going to bless you. God is going to bless you. God loves a cheerful giver. And when you give, not only do you store up treasures in heaven which will never perish or fade away, but you also put yourself in a place of blessing where God will spiritually bless you and God will meet all your needs in Christ Jesus and I know that God is going to do that in your life because you gave to me generously and I see that coming and that is my greatest joy. My greatest joy is knowing that your souls are growing in the Lord. My greatest joy is knowing that your spiritual lives are going to be blessed. My greatest joy is knowing that your reward in heaven is great. My greatest joy is not in the gift, although don't get me wrong, I love the gift. My greatest joy is knowing that you are walking with the Lord and the Lord is going to bless you through this. I don't seek the gift. I seek the profit that increases to your account through your generous giving. But note this carefully, that's why he would receive the gift. It's because they'd be blessed through their giving. This is an amazing perspective. An amazing verse. You say, can a leader be a servant to his church even as he receives the giving from his church? And the answer is verse 17. Paul served the Philippian church because his motivation in receiving these gifts was ultimately they would profit. He loved their fellowship. He loved their unity. He loved their encouragement. He loved, he appreciated the gift itself. But in the end, he just rejoiced that they were doing well spiritually. And that's the heart of the leaders at our church. Would we be thrilled if 
through the Laying the Foundation Stewardship Campaign, God would grant us a permanent location in a building. Absolutely, we would rejoice and we would ask that God would use that building for the progress of His gospel and for the glory of His name and for the advancement of His kingdom and that it would not be our name that would be exalted, it would be Christ's name that would be exalted, and, but we would rejoice in that provision. Do we rejoice in the actual giving of this church, the near 100% participation of this church in this campaign? Absolutely. It is practical. It is generous. It is proportional. It is sacrificial. It is cheerful. And yet, as spiritual leaders, what is our greatest joy? What is our greatest joy? 3 John, verse 4. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Our greatest joy is to know that through this process, your souls are being sanctified. That through this process, your love of money and your love of materialism, is, you're being weaned off the world. That through this process, your love for Christ is increasing. Through this process, you're learning how to be more wise financial stewards of what God has given to you. Our greatest joy is that you're walking in the truth and we know that through your generous giving, God will richly bless you. That you're storing up treasures in heaven which you will never lose. And even in this life, God will meet all your needs and He will pour His grace upon your life. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work we know that God is going to pour His grace upon you. And that's, that's our greatest joy. That's our boast. That's our exaltation. That's, that's what we rejoice in. Paul says, I rejoice more in the fruit that increases to your credit than I rejoice in the gift itself. That's a shepherd's heart. That's a gospel-centered heart. It's a heart of a servant that's been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul says in verse 18, one more reason why he rejoiced in the Philippians' gift. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. There's one final reason why Paul rejoiced. He rejoiced because the Philippians were with him. He rejoiced in the gospel itself that his sins were forgiven. He rejoiced that they had comforted him materially, financially. He rejoiced that um, they, in the partnership of the gospel over these last ten years, 
He rejoiced in the Philippians' growth spiritually and in the fruit that was being born in their lives and their spiritual maturity and the fact that God would reward them for their giving. But the final reason why Paul rejoiced is in verse 18. Their giving was in itself an act of worship to God. It was an act of worship to God. He uses Old Testament imagery and Old Testament terminology to describe their gift and he calls it a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And he says, you know what? Your giving was all the things I just talked about and more. It was encouragement and fellowship and growth and an occasion for God to reward you, an occasion for God to pour His grace upon your life. And it was all those things. But you know what? In the end, your giving was not about me and your giving was not about you. In the end, your giving was about God. Your giving was, a, it was an offering to God. It was a sacrifice to God. It was like those Old Testament sacrifices where they would burn the offering and the Old Testament would say this offering is pleasing. It's a pleasing aroma into God's, in God's sight. He says to the church, today we don't kill animals and offer sacrifices, but we give, grace giving. And our grace giving is an act of worship. And that's why I rejoice. Because God is glorified in your giving. As we look at this passage, it really is amazing, isn't it? The power of a monetary gift the significance of a monetary gift, the meaning of monetary financial giving, how it means so many things and it channels so many blessings and it signifies so much about the church. And this is what I believe that your response as a church has meant to the Laying the Foundation Stewardship Campaign. It has meant all these things. It was a simple act of filling out a pledge card or going online and clicking a few buttons, but in that act, you as a church said so much. You said to the leaders, we're behind you. We want to see the gospel preached. We support the ministry of the Word and of prayer. You said to one another, we are one as a church. We are fellowshipping together as a church. We are fellowshipping together even as we give together for this one common cause for the glory of Christ. You have placed yourself in a position of God's blessing because God loves a cheerful giver. You have increased your heavenly reward, treasures which will not fade away and which are imperishable. And in the end, 
you have offered up a pleasing sacrifice to God. And for this, the leader of our church would say what Paul said to the Philippians. We would say we rejoice. We rejoice and give thanks. And we would simply say, as we respond to our commitment Sunday last week, we would say thank you. Thank you for your fellowship. Thank you for your participation in the gospel. Thank you for your love for Christ. Thank you for worshiping God through your giving. Thank you for your care and your concern for this church. And thank you for expressing all those things, your heart for the gospel and your heart for the church and your heart for each other, not just in words, not just in sentiment, not just in notes or cards, but expressing it in the same way the Philippians did through your generous, sacrificial, proportional, cheerful giving. And so we end with verse 19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for inspiring this text that we may see the heart of Paul, that we may see a heart that was satisfied in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we may see a heart that was transformed into a servant's heart, that loved to rejoice as believers walked with Christ. Thank you for allowing us to be a part of this joy and to partake of this joy. Thank you for each brother and sister in Christ at this church who has been a cheerful giver and has offered up to you pleasing sacrifice, a fragrant aroma. We ask and pray that you would continue to be glorified in our church as we cherish the gospel of your Son. And we pray that the gospel we continue to be exalted and proclaimed in our midst. We pray this for our joy and for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.